Last week we, uh, we spent some time on the idea of loving the Lord your God with all your strength and gave an opportunity for people to respond afterwards. And so um, just in light of that, decided today to kind of follow up and to, to try to engage the conversation about how do I grow in Christ? How do I really find my relationship there? How does that really work? And to try to do my best at that. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing, like we're, we're eternal creatures, right? No one, no one is a mere mortal kind of um, without a soul. We are eternal beings. The person sitting to your left, to your right, the person in the car in front of you on the way here, we're all eternal creatures. And we're, we're not static, so we're, we're either growing up into the Lord or we're in some sense falling away from the Lord, we're, we're not static. And so I take church very serious. I take changed lives very seriously. That's why I can't stand um, church growth, that whole idea of, of getting into church as if it's a business and to try to figure it out for the purpose of growing and, and, and influence that way because we can somehow sometimes in that corporate thing, because the business side is, is not the living side, but sometimes in the corporate thing, we can miss the fact that we're dealing with eternal souls. And if you're not going to grow here, or if your kids aren't going to grow here, if this is not the best place for you to be planted, then I'd rather you go somewhere else in this church be smaller. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, 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 don't, I don't want you sitting here dying on the vine if your souls can be nurtured somewhere else. And so I see it very soulishly. Uh, last year, or last summer, uh, Luis Plow was going to come speak at Antioch, um, but I already had two other speakers lined up that were guests, and so um, I had to tell Kevin, Kevin's this, uh, Luis's son who kind of runs the Plow organization now, I said, you know, it's just not going to work. But in that whole conversation about talking uh, and having his dad come to Antioch, I was joking with him, and I said, you know, uh, who knows, he might save half, half my congregation, you know, it'd be great if Luis could come preach and, and uh, you know, he might save half of everyone, you know. And I was kind of joking, but I was telling that story a couple weeks later to somebody else and they were like, are you serious? You think he'd save half the congregation? I said, no, I don't. Um, I think there's some people that might be able to hear him. I think there's some people that, that, that might be a great opportunity for them to make a decision. No, I don't see it as like half the congregation is sitting there and they don't know the Lord yet. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, well... Every Sunday I walk up and I try to save my congregation. Not half, but all of my congregation. Every Sunday I get up and it's about there are these eternal beings with souls and, and I, I want to preach in such a way that I'm, I'm literally trying to save my congregation every Sunday. And so I said, no, the, the joke about Luis Plow saving half my congregation was just a joke. Um, who knows, though, it might have been true. Um, but that's the idea, is, is we're, we're wrestling with, with human souls and we're trying to find a way that we would grow up into the Lord and that we wouldn't be falling away or wasting time or being dull to the fact that what we're, we're dealing with and, and the times we're living in, that it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. What you did last night has a spiritual component. The grief you brought in this morning very much has a spiritual component. The sins that you're struggling with has a spiritual dimension to it. And so 
that's kind of where I'm coming at it from and, and with the with all the cards and people making responses last week, it's, it's, it really brings it back for me to say, how do we wrestle with our souls and how do we wrestle with growth and how do we wrestle with coming to know the Lord and, and very practically, how does that look? What, what, what do we do with that? And so um, I kind of framed this morning from the perspective of if I was talking to my teenage daughters, they're not, they're not teenagers yet, um, that would be a nightmare. <laughs> uh, my oldest is 11, and, but I, I kind of have worked enough with, with youth and with college kids. I kind of projected forward and said, what would I want to teach my high school daughters if they were in, if they were in high school um, that I've learned about God and, and my relationship with God? So today is very much just kind of my testimony in, in my story and, and the things I've learned along the way that hopefully may, may be of benefit to some of you. And the first thing here is, is, is just Jesus. The first thing is Jesus. It's also the first commitment or value at Antioch is that we would be Christ-centered. And I think we don't have a, a deep enough, healthy enough discussion about who Jesus is uh, the anointed one, Christ, the second person in the Trinity. And if we don't have a deep enough conversation about Christ, if he really is the way, the truth, and the life, it means we're going to have a foggy way, a foggy truth, and a foggy sense of where to find fullness of life. Does that make sense? If we're not clear about this thing, then the things that derive from this thing the way, the truth, and the life, we're also going to be unclear with. Does that, does that make sense? So the first thing I want to just say is um, we need to have a mature view of Jesus. I think more than anyone else, C.S. Lewis taught me this. C.S. Lewis, had, there's a whole, I mean, all of his letters, um, after he wrote so many letters in his lifetime, he saw it, as his pastoral duty that everybody that wrote him a letter that he would have to write back. And his brother, who was uh, kind of a retired um, person in the military, lived in his house with him. They were, they were both bachelors most of their lives, and Lewis got married late in life, uh, C.S. Lewis did. But his brother, Warney, uh, would help, and they would write these letters to everyone that wrote him, and they would keep records of kind of the, the addresses, and over the course of 20 years, it was, he racked up an unbelievable amount of letters to people all around the world, in the United States, in Australia, just, just everywhere. Uh, he hated Christmas because Christmas meant three times the letters. And uh, so somebody from Wheaton College went over and... Uh, and, and um, the Wade Center... Uh, I want to say Clyde Kilby, but I forget the guy's name, but it's the Wade Center is now in Wheaton. A lot of C.S. Lewis's stuff, in fact, a lot of the Inklings, um, you can see Tolkien's desk that he wrote Lord of the Rings on during, um, during the war, you know, his little desk and typewriter. And there's this kind of um, Wade Center in, in Wheaton that's got all of C.S. Lewis and the Inklings kind of memorabilia. And the reason was it was a, it was a Wheaton professor that went over and asked permission from Lewis's brother after he died to have a lot of this stuff, and began writing letters to everyone that they had written a letter to, saying, can I have the original or a facsimile of that letter? 
and they collected all of these letters. In fact, if you get the recently published um, three-volume set of Lewis's collected letters, uh, it's, it's like this big. Um, it, it's actually a funny story. So uh, I wasn't planning on telling this, but it just feels like one of those. This is my testimony day, so I get to tell my stories, and, and that's okay. Um, so I was actually in Oxford meeting with Walter Hooper. Walter Hooper was, for a short time before Lewis died, Lewis's assistant, um, and then afterwards moved over to Oxford, lived with Lewis's brother, and then became uh, the literary, the executive, the literary ex executor to the estate. He was, he was the guy that kind of was in charge of all Lewis's writings and whatnot, edited a lot of the compilation books. So in 2005, 2005, 2005 I, I was in Oxford with Walter Hooper, and he handed me a letter. He's like, hey, this is one of my favorite letters. And he was working on editing the third volume of that set. And I read it, and I was like, hey, this just doesn't make sense to me. He goes, what do you mean? I was like, I don't know. This just doesn't make sense. It doesn't read right. Um, it doesn't sound like Lewis. And, and he's like, well, let me see that. And he looks at it and then gets this puzzled look on his face. And then he, he runs to the back of his flat, um, and he comes out uh, with the actual um, facts of the original letter. And sure enough when it had been transcribed by somebody, it had been transcribed wrong. But it wasn't like a misspelling or, or a grammar error that would have, would have been flagged. And he kind of goes, wow, imagine that. So then he, he runs back again and comes back, and he had the, the letter, uh, and he'd marked it with the correct thing, signed it, folded it up, put it in an envelope, and just hand handed it me. He said, you just edited a, a C.S. Lewis letter. You and, like, you guys are the only ones that know that, and my wife, like two other people. My mom, I think I wrote her about it. Um, but over the, before the, the full three-volume set, there was a bunch of different um, volumes of Lewis letters. And one of them is they took all the letters that had to do with children, and they put it into a book, and, and it was uh, Letters to Children. And in that book, there's a really fascinating letter from a mom who writes to C.S. Lewis and says, Hey, my, my, my son... Uh, we've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and he's in love with Aslan. Uh, Jesus, not so much, but Aslan, he's really in love with, and I'm a little concerned about this. I don't know what to do about it. Um, and Lewis writes back in a very pastoral way and says, you don't need to do anything about it. What he's in love with about Aslan, what, 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 what is true of Aslan that your son loves are the Christ characters. It's, it, it is Jesus in the figure of Aslan that your son loves. And as he matures, that will transfer over to Christ because it's really the qualities and it's, it's the person. It doesn't matter whether he has the mane of a lion uh, or whether he walks uh, as a human. It's, it's the character, it's the identity that your son's really in love with. And, and that'll just, as he grows, grows up, transfer over. And, and if you read that letter, there's, there's a real wisdom to what C.S. Lewis is saying. And, and I was, we've been reading with the kids, the Chronicles of Narnia, and I want to kind of read for you how Lewis puts this at the end of the uh, voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, the four Pevensey children who show up in the first several books, um, King Peter, Susan, hi, King Peter, 
Queen Susan. Then there's Edmund and Lucy. And at the end of Prince Caspian, Peter and Susan are told, uh, you're too old, you're not going to be coming back to Narnia. Uh, and then when we get to the voyage of the Dawn Treader, the two children that come back are Edmund and Lucy and their cousin Eustace. And, and the book begins with, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. It's fascinating beginning to a book. Um, rivals uh, Dickens's Tale of Two Cities, right, uh, for beginnings of a book. So at the end here, they're in Aslan's country, and the book is closing down, and Edmund and Lucy are there. And it says this. Now, now you can see Lewis's thought in this along the lines of the letter that he wrote to that mom. So just listen. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, will you tell us how to get into your... Oh, I'm sorry. I wanna, I'll get to that one later. Um, Please, Aslan, said Lucy, before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please. And oh, do, do, do make it soon. Dearest, said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy, both together in despairing voices. You are too old, children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little you may know me better there. Isn't that, isn't that something? There's something about the process of growing up and maturing whereby we come to know things differently. And what Lewis is setting up in this book is saying, I'm going to bring it down to the, to the level of children and speak in symbolism and, and figuratively and and with rich literature and fiction, and I'm going to tell this story, and that story is going to capture the heart of the gospel. It's going to ca capture the heart of our Lord. It's going to capture all of it. But as you grow up, it's the richness of that story and the truthfulness of that story that will then kind of grow into your life. And the way he's saying it in this book is, hey, I'm at a level that you guys can relate to here in Narnia. But as you grow up and as you go back to your own world, you need to learn to know how to call me by name there and relate to me in a close way there because I'm there too and, and it's about Jesus and it's about, it's about that name and that picture and, and that sacrifice, not talking animals, uh, dear children, that you need to learn to see me. And I think there's something rich here that we need to come to understand that, that we as Christians or as people seeking Christ don't always grow up into our understanding of Christ but sometimes take a very childish, distant, difficult view of Jesus and leave it static there and never, never grow up into it. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Um, the first one is this. I remember taken in, in at Clemson University this film class where you 
it was an elective. I was an engineering student. You didn't meet any girls in engineering classes. Um, everything was difficult. There wasn't anything fun. I mean, there's nothing about engineering that was... <laughs> so when you, when you got electives, you took things like a film class, right? Um, so I took this film class, but it was a fascinating class, evaluating film and being literary for the first time in college. And, and, and they talked about the different camera angles to evoke different emotions. So the bird's eye view, uh, the distant shot, the, the panoramic or whatever. And then there's the close-up. And then there's the extreme close-up. And so when I was in seminary, I remember I was journaling and I was thinking through those different camera uh, angles. And I remember thinking that in all of my envisioning of Jesus, it was always at the same camera angles that you would see like in a movie on Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus with the crowds, Jesus on the cross, Jesus up on the hill praying. But it was always as if I was a, as a, I was a Zacchaeus in a tree watching or observing Jesus from afar. But none of my mental picturings of Jesus ever had anything to do with Jesus looking me in the eyes in this kind of extreme close-up view of Jesus. Very personal. And I thought, wow, that's really strange. And if I'm always just observing in a distant view, how can I ever really see this as a dynamic relationship if there's never a personal dimension to it? And I remember thinking, wow, that was a really powerful insight. And so I, I wrestled with that a lot and trying to say, uh, how do I actually talk to Jesus? Um, and there's a second aspect that comes into this that I think is very important. And I think it's why we never really take the time to really figure out how to talk to Jesus because we don't understand, again, the role of Christ. If you move to Genesis real quick, Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, it's, it's maybe a story you learned when you were a child. Uh, it's Jacob's dream. And Jacob is fleeing. And he comes and he puts a stone underneath his head. And he has this dream. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he'd stop for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And 3,000 years later, Led Zeppelin wrote Stairway to Heaven. And every high school kid that learned how to play guitar since then. Um, anyways. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. So there's earth... And the heavens, like up in the sky, and there's this stairway going. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. Now this is all caps, Lord. So this is, this is God. This is Yahweh. Um, this is the Father. This is at the top of the steps. And the angels are ascending and descending on these steps. Okay? So there's, the, there's a, a path, a bridge open between heaven and earth. And, and there's this connection being made. And the angels or the messengers are, are ascending and descending as heaven and earth 
are connected as Jacob is connected with the Lord. Um, and it's this fascinating picture. And then he gives him this promise. I'm the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And he continues. And notice what's going on here uh, is that Jacob never climbs the stairway to heaven. That this bridge or these stairs were not put there for him to climb. They were put there as a connection, as a mediation, as a, a bridge that allowed um, heaven and earth to be in dialogue for, for the angels to ascend and descend. So if you turn to the book of John, you'll see the other passage where this is referenced. When I first learned this, it was fascinating to me because somewhere along the lines, I think we've all heard that, that song, whether it's a gospel song or kind of more like a hymn, but it's, um, uh, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. Have you, ever, you know what I'm talking about? Does someone know how to sing that? Come on. We're all family here. Some, somebody, don't make me do it. We're climbing Jacob's ladder. You know, all right. Did you guys, somebody? Nobody. All right. But there's a song, and it's a, it's a church song. It's a, one of those kind of deep, traditional songs. But it's, it's this idea we're all climbing Jacob's ladder. And you go, wait a second. <laughs> but Jacob didn't climb Jacob's ladder. And so... The other passage where we see this is the very beginning of John, chapter 1. Jesus calls his first disciples. And in verse 40, uh, 43, um, uh, Nathaniel approaches. So let's just skip down to verse 47. So they're, all these disciples are coming. They're having this, you know, who's Jesus? What good can come from Nazareth? And then Jesus sees uh, um, Nathanael. Uh, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, verse 47, he said to him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And how do you know me, Nathanael asked. Like, wait a second, aren't we just meeting? How do you know me to be able to say something about my character, my integrity to such a degree? Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then, and then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I mean, so just Jesus opens up a little bit of insight and Nathaniel comes back with this huge proclamation. You're the son of God. You're the king. And Jesus says, Wow. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Such a small little glimpse of what's going on? You believe because of that? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You shall see heaven open up so that you're getting a connection of heaven and, and that there's this 
this connection between heaven and earth, and you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so Jesus has now switched the metaphor of a stairway and saying the bridge or the stairway or the mediation between heaven and earth, the path, the way that these two things are going to be connected with the messengers of God going back and forth is the Son of Man. I'm the bridge. I'm the stairway to heaven. I'm the way. Why is that so fascinating? Because I think we, for a long time in America, we've, we've, we've been taught that Jesus is a bridge or Jesus is the way, and we, we see it very linearly, and we take it um, almost as a, a kind of a stair-step thing, and we even draw the pictures this way. So, so a lot of times when we draw a picture about what does it mean to be saved, we draw kind of a cliff here, this huge chasm where we say there's sin, and then we draw this other cliff over here and we say heaven, and we kind of put God the Father. And so there's this huge gulf between God and us, and sin is in the way, and we, we can't bridge over sin. We can't get over sin because we're, we're stuck and, and we're sinful people. And then we draw into that a cross, and the idea is Jesus covers sin and provides the way for us to get across the chasm to be with God. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but see what the imagery does. Once I've crossed Christ to get over to here with God, what have I like literally done, visually done in that, that picture? I've climbed the stairway to heaven. I've walked across the bridge, and now I'm here with God. Now, where does that leave Jesus? It leaves Jesus behind me. It leaves Jesus as a mechanism that I've enabled or employed or, or utilized. It, it's, a, it's a means to an end. And, and, and where does Jesus really fit in now? And so if we stand here having crossed Jesus and become a you know, Christian, been reconciled with God, how do I now view Jesus or talk to Jesus or build a relationship with Jesus? It's a little bit confusing. It's a little bit cumbersome. Well, shouldn't I just talk to the Father? I mean, what use is this anymore? I've already taken and squeezed the value out of it. I've come across, I don't, under, I don't understand. Now, if we see this rightly, Biblically, we realize that the idea of bridge or stairway is, is me metaphorical for connection or mediation. So I'm here, and I can't talk to God because there is sin, and God is holy, and I'm not holy, and you can't mix any kind of paint with white paint and have the white paint stay white. Any shade of gray with white paint, would mess up white paint, so we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Does that make sense? I need to first be made clean. I need to first be made white. I need to, I need to be cleansed so that I can have a relationship. And Jesus forgives my sins with the cross, yes. And in doing so, he connects me to God as my high priest, as the way, as my mediator. And so, 
in the book of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus giving intercession for our sins always and continually on behalf of us to God. That he sits at the right hand of God and every time we sin, nope, I got that one. Nope, it's okay. I, I covered that. No, I'm covering that. And he gives, he gives us his forgiveness for our sins and he keeps us in a state of being able to be connected with God as our high priest. That he is the, the bridge that allows for angels to ascend and descend as we are connected to God. So that we see when we, uh, when we look in, in this whole idea of Jesus ascending to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God, in other words, seated, all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and, and he's seated at the right hand of God, that he's not behind us because we've traversed him and now he's functionally done with. He's seated at the right hand of God and we're here. He is still in the equation connecting us to God. He never leaves the equation. So the stairway idea or the bridge motif is all about connection. It's not about kind of a linear walking across. We don't do the walking. If you turn to Th uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to start talking faster. I want, to, I want to cover a lot of ground. 1 Thessalonians, listen to how it ends. We'll make use of a couple of these verses um, in a few other points. But it says in chapter 5, verse 16 and following, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and following, it says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything and hold on to the good. Now avoid every kind of evil. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. We got to understand that when we, when we come to Christ, we're, we're coming to one who is our high priest and has forgiven our sins, but is not done with us. He continues to sanctify us, and then ultimately he's going to call us into the kingdom to be with him and his father, and he's going to give us entrance there. We call that glorification. So there's justification and sanctification and glorification, and we were saved, and we are being saved, and we will be saved, and Jesus is vitally involved in all of these steps and when we treat Jesus as this kind of static bridge, this one-time thing, it really leaves us with this, with this thin, kind of immature view of how do I relate to Christ? How do I relate to Christ? So I, I had this view of do I ever see the personal close-up, extreme close-up, that I have a relationship with Jesus? And then I realized there's a second part to that that I think without that, it doesn't work. And the second part was this. I realized whenever I see Jesus or think about Jesus or go to talk about Jesus, I'm seeing him in the New Testament. I'm seeing him 2,000 years ago. I'm seeing him walking around Jerusalem. I'm not seeing him as seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And I realized I need to start learning how to talk to Jesus, to think about Jesus as being seated at the right hand of God daily, making intercession on my behalf, being willing to extend forgiveness for my sins. And when I see Jesus that way, it changes everything. I can talk about all of life instead of going, I really appreciate what you did, but I've told you that like 20 times. I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, and you were a really cool dude like 2,000 years ago, and I probably would have really thought you were cool. You seemed really nice, and you were also a rugged guy. You, you know, you went into the temple and flipped a bunch of tables. That's really cool. But, but we leave it framed in his earthly life, and we, we don't know how to talk about Jesus now. And when we understand that he's our high priest, and that all of life, the grief you brought in, the sins you're struggling with, the doubts that you have, the need to sense that the Holy Spirit is actually working in your life today, that, that there's something good that can still come out of you, that's locked up, that, that he can breathe into life. When we understand that, we understand how we can talk to Jesus today. So the first thing is we need to have a, a mature understanding of Jesus to grow up into it, to learn how to talk to, to him, to learn how to see him, to have it be theologically grounded, not just the TV movies or flannel graphs creating a contorted picture and that becomes a static reality of how we see and look at Jesus, but something that's rich and full and true. The second thing, the first thing is Jesus. The second thing that I would relay to you, my teenage daughters, um, is happiness. We have to understand the value of happiness and the truth about happiness. My dad, one time, this is after I became a Christian, we were driving around on a Saturday. We'd walked this, uh, this around a lake. And we were driving back, and he said, he said, Ken, are you happy? I said, yeah, Dad, I'm, I'm happy. He says, good. That's all that matters to me. And I remember thinking, my first thought was like, well, that's a really non-religious, cheap thing to say. You know, like, shouldn't he be saying something deeper, richer, fuller about God or my soul? And, and then I, because I was a new Christian, and when you're a new Christian, you judge everybody. Um, and then I kind of thought about it some more, and I was like, no, I think maybe there's a purity and simplicity to what my dad just said. Um. He loves me. I'm a son. He, he, just, he, he wants me to be happy. And so this morning I was driving with Mary Joy to church and I looked at her and I said, what was, what, was the, what was the best day of your life that you can remember? What was the happiest day of your life? And she, you know, she gave the, the best answer first. Oh, Dad, there's so many. I can't think of one, right? Which is kind of what I wanted to hear. Um, and then she started sharing a couple thoughts. Dad, that day we were at Disneyland. And I was like, oh, of course, Disneyland. But then she, it wasn't Disneyland, you see. It was when, when Esther and you and I went off for that half a day and just the three of us and we went to California Adventure and we did these rides, just us together. 
And then she goes, oh, and then the other one was that, that time I went to California with mom, just the two of us. You know, and it was, it, was, it was the relationship and the connection that really was what made her the happiest, you know. And so there's two things in that, and I want to draw them out quickly. The first thing, a parent cares about your happiness. God cares about your happiness. Why? He created you. We are eternal, soulish beings. And in all things being equal, your joy, your satisfaction, your fullness of life, the goodness, the health of your soul, your father cares very much about that. Secondly, God knows, just like I know, that true happiness comes in relationship and it comes only in certain soil. God knows, like I know, like any parent knows, that, that happiness isn't a complete free grab bag, that you can do anything, make any wrong decisions, and find true fullness uh, of life, joy, happiness. It doesn't work that way. That God designed you a certain way, this world only works a certain way, and, and only when we are being obedient and seeking relational unity with God, with others, and, and, and pursuing the way God designed us to work, purity or holiness, that only in that can we, can we really be happy. I mean, I ache with this. Any parent aches with this. I look at my kids and I'm like, how in the world can I help plant in you the realization that doing the right things really does matter? And that doing the wrong things really does matter. It will affect your life. It can ruin your life. There are people that for 20 years have been asking me advice that, that, that don't walk with the Lord. For 20 years, I, there's different people in my life that ask me advice, and I give them the same advice every single phone call. And I'm getting older and tireder, and so I don't like answering these questions anymore. Because I'm, I, I get really offended. Because, because I'm like, I've been giving you the same advice and you've never taken it. And, and not only that, by not taking it, everything stays bad or gets worse. Do you not see that? And it's not that my advice is wise or smart or that I'm some whatever. It's, it's, it's obey. It's obey God. It's make decisions and choose God. Do right and I can't say it any other way. And, it, and, it, and it's really offensive to me. And, and I'm like, oh, do you not see the consequences of your actions? And so if I'm looking at my high school daughters someday or college kids or anyone else, it's like, yes, happiness matters. But you were meant to find it in connection with the holiness of God, not apart from the holiness of God. And so frankly, your happiness and the holiness of God have to somehow fit together. The holiness of God is harsh, unbending, and unyielding. Even though it has in it the, the, the tenderness of a father's heart, it cannot bend or yield the, the rules of this universe. What, what 
what constitutes obedience, what constitutes sin, what constitutes destruction, those are there and they're fixed. And God wants you to find happiness in obeying him and being um, holy as he is holy. It's, it's that simple. And God will help, God will forgive, God will give grace when we go wrong, but he cannot change the fact that obedience matters. And I was reading in, in Chronicles, it's um, just last night, crazy story. King Uzziah, he's a good king. Chapter 26 of 2 Chronicles, good king. And he goes and he's doing, he's doing right by God and he has the fear of the Lord and God is big and God is, is, is over all of it. And so God gives him success. He blesses him. And this keeps going. But over time, Uzziah gets proud because of all the blessing makes him think more and more of himself. And so less and less of God and the holiness of God and more and more of himself. And so then he begins to make his own decisions. And so he goes into the temple and instead of trusting the priests to make sacrifice on behalf of the Israelites, he's gonna do it. Why? Because he's so big and he's so close to God and God blesses him so much. And the priests implore him, don't do this. It is not right, it is not fitting, it is disobedient for you to try and take it into your own hands, for you to write the rules yourself. And he ignores them and he gets angry at them and so he goes to do this with the incense and the minute he does, God strikes him with leprosy. And I don't think we understand happiness right and I don't think we understand holiness right. We talk about grace so much with Christ who's interceding on, on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. Why does he need to intercede? Because God is holy. And without Christ's intercession, our sins would merit judgment to reconcile, to pay the balance of what's really going on. And so we have to understand the holiness of God, the scariness of that, that, that there's a bigness to it and that we should be afraid that, that our God is a consuming fire. When the Israelites went out and the, and the mountain shook and, and literally were terrified, that still is our God. Even though it's inside of it is, is this loving Father's heart that made this way for forgiveness to come to us. But if we don't understand holiness, we won't understand discipline. And it's something we don't talk about. It says in Hebrews that God still disciplines us. God cares about our holiness. He cares about our happiness, that we come into alignment with that, that we find fullness of life, that the relationship is there. And he disciplines us unto that effect, just like any parent does that doesn't want their kid to be coddled and turn out being soured or, or going bad or being spoiled. We discipline and teach and instruct. Yes, it's good that you're happy. Yes, it's good that you laugh and smile, but there are rules to that. And you can't do it at the expense of other people. You can't become bad in the process of this. You, you have to do it right. So we have to understand happiness and we need to talk more about it. And we need to help people understand that God's rules are not these simpleton, archaic, religious leftovers of a bygone era of people thousands of years ago creating rules. 
Because the more we talk like that, the more people are like, why would I bother listening to these at all? Why would I bother following it all? We have to help people understand that obedience is a means to an end. Third um, scripture. Scripture matters. If you're ever going to have a personal relationship with God and if you're ever going to know the joys of that, there have to be times when it is unmediated by a pastor or through church or through a sermon. You have to know the joy of being in fellowship with the Spirit yourself. And that can only happen if you yourself are communing with God. One of the mechanisms, one of the primary mechanisms God gave us for that is Scripture. It's why if you read Scripture at all, the Bible at all, you begin to learn that it, it has a different quality to it and God meets you there. That's why people say it's living. It's living words. It's like God breathes those words to you. And I think we've lost the art of Scripture reading. I don't think we talk about it enough. Uh, I don't think we hold it up as something that's a responsibility that everyone has on their own. I can't read the Bible for you. I can't have a, a personal relationship with God for you. The, the person you know that's full of joy, that you're like, man, I want to be a Christian like that, they can't have a personal relationship with God for you. You can't join in on theirs. To have a direct personal relationship with God means you actually have to be the one doing it. There's a responsibility that we all have and an opportunity that we all get to say, on our own, we can choose this. We can make a decision to pursue this. And scripture reading is one of the ways we do that. It's a discipline. It's a choice that we do. Now, how do we make that work? It's like anything, right? The more you do it, the more it becomes a part of uh, your routine or a habit. The more you get good at it, the more you realize the benefit of it. So that sends you back to it, right? So like anything, we can grow into it. And I would say we, we typically do most things in life right when we're trying to grow and we do scripture wrong when we're trying to grow. This is what I mean. It, we're really smart as Americans. And we're literate. Which means we typically know how to learn about anything that, that we want to do or, or get better at. So your golf game or cooking. okay? Um, nobody, I've been a pastor now for 15 years. Nobody has ever asked me how to have a better golf game. Nobody's, nobody's ever asked me that. Nobody's ever asked me how to cook better. You want to know why? Because you don't need to. You know how to read. You know how to spell Google. Um, you know how to find people that are good at it, get next to them, ask them some questions and learn. You know, everyone knows that practice makes perfect, that the more we do this, the better we're going to get at it, Everyone knows that there's instructions that you follow with a golf swing or with recipes or how you cook certain things and balance the acidity or whatever. We know how to get better at things as Americans. Yet when it comes to our relationship with God, we throw all that out and we, I mean, we, we get so stupid about God. I'm, I'm so dead serious. It's, it's like... Golf. You can go figure out golf. 
you can figure out how to grow in your relationship with God. You know how to read. You know there's the Bible. It's almost that it's too boring to us or too mundane to us or too simple to us or we know the answer already too much that we're kind of like, I don't know. I mean, it's just not sexy enough. Maybe there's a new book I could go buy. Don't ever buy new books, by the way. Um, uh, <laughs> I, was, I meant that as a joke. <laughs> you guys are but we, we're so enamored with the, with, with the latest or the newest or someone's going to crack the code and make it easy for us. Someone's going to like figure it out. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a spiritual leader out there, Mark Driscoll or, or so, whoever, that, man, if I just listen to that person, it's gonna, then I'm going to really grow. I mean, we, we do all these things. We kind of... We kind of, it's always going to be something else or someone else's responsibility, but we never really engage. That for me to grow in my relationship with God means I actually have to be spending time with God and wrestling through this relationship and my maturity with Him. Reading my Bible and doing it enough that I get good at it and doing these disciplines, these spiritual disciplines. I mean, it's, it's really interesting that you guys can become experts at anything without talking to me. But then when it flips, and it's like becoming really good at our relationship with God, it's all of a sudden, I mean, it just, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's not just you. I'm, it's, a, like, it's a whole American problem. And so scripture matters, and it matters that you just make a decision to start doing it. There are decisions that you make in the moment all the time. What am I going to do here? What am I going to do there? And then there are decisions that affect other decisions, what I would call second-order decisions. Write that down. Second-order decisions. When you got married and you said, I commit to you, or you, you made a decision to choose this, it's a second-order decision, decision. This decision affects all other decisions. Your decision to become a Christian is a, a second-order decision. It's one decision, but it affects all other decisions. Your sin, this is what people don't realize, we make decisions to sin as if they're, they're first-order decisions. You know what, today, I'm just, screw it all. I'm really upset. I'm really angry. I just, just want to act out. I'm going to go do this. And we, we think it's a first-order decision. And sin is never a first-order decision. It's always a second-order decision that affects other decisions. It, it sets into to motion whole states of affairs. Um, it's a second-order decision. Becoming good at reading the Bible, choosing to pursue this above other things you're going to pursue in your life, it's a second-order decision. I'm going to decide today that this is going to be a higher priority so that if other things don't happen, that's fine, but this thing will happen. Second-order decision. I'm making a strong enough decision that it affects all my other decisions. If you want to become really effective at life just in general... Take God out of the equation, just wisdom. And certainly if you want to grow in your relationship with God, you need to become really good at second-order decisions. You want to make a lot of headway in life really fast? Learn how to focus on second-order decisions, not first-order decisions. 
when we're trying to teach our kids um, how to become good at things so that we're not always having to tell them the same things over and over, what we're really trying to do is help them learn how to make second-order decisions in their their little lives as they mature. Because we know if they learn how to do that, they're going to be more successful as adults if they can make lasting, long-term, deep decisions, second-order decisions, character decisions. Does that make sense? The greatest thing you could do is to take on the responsibility and the opportunity to say, I choose that I will serve the Lord. And one of the things I will do is build into my life the time necessary, the opportunity necessary to have a direct relationship with God and to wrestle that thing out. I will do that. I will learn about it. I will figure it out. If I get stumped, I'll figure out how to get around it. If I hit a roadblock, I'll get online and I'll Google something. I I will take the responsibility to do that. First thing, Jesus. Second thing, happiness. Third thing, scripture. The fourth thing which flows from it is solitude. We need to learn how to transform prayer. Our prayer life and our, our understanding of prayer has gotten to be so simplistic in a subtle way that we haven't even known, uh, we, we don't even notice what's, what's transpi- transpired. Our view of God affects our discipline of prayer. If we, if we see God as just kind of the guy that created, he's a force, he's, he's whatever, and, and it matters, and it, but it's foggy, then our view of prayer is going to be what? One, not very often, not very dynamic. Two, when life gets scary enough that we realize the eternal consequences and how spiritual everything is, we'll throw a Hail Mary, help. You're big, I don't understand you, and you're a force. Please help. Does that make sense? And so we're going to to begin to pattern our prayer lives as as being sporadic and characterized by um, our requests of God or to God. Now, it's not that making requests to God is bad, but when that becomes the dominant reality of our conversation with God, then something's really out of whack. If my dominant conversation with you is all about my needs how are you going to begin to feel about me over time? How? Like, wow, he's just using me. We've all done this. I mean, let's just be honest. We've all done that. Seen people somewhere along the lines more as a means to an end than as an end in themselves. And the relationship was less than than the utility at, at times, we've all done that. We go through stages where we treat our parents like that. But if that, over a long period of time, is characteristic of the, the relationship, that's all that characterizes the relationship. It's not really a relationship. And you wouldn't really say that there's love or intimacy. Does that make sense? So let's start it over. If God is big and he's holy, 
and he's our, our father and he cares about us and he loves us and he desires to have a relationship with us and he desires for us to be working alongside him in this world with his will and his desires and he desires us to know his fellowship and he desires this for us. Then when we take that over to here and say, what does prayer look like? What's the answer we're going to get? We're going to get an answer that looks a lot like how Jesus prayed. And what we see with Jesus is that prayer was, was, was very little on the question request side, very big on the quality time side, and on the being together intimacy side. See, prayer, if we want to understand it correctly, is about time spent with God. That's why I like the word solitude more than I like the word prayer. Because I think solitude speaks to that so much better. We're with God. Listening, um, trying to open up our hearts and, and be transparent so that we might figure out what's really going on. Enjoying the presence of God. Choosing the presence of God over other things that we would be putting our minds and our attention onto. And when appropriate, asking questions. But a lot of times those questions are like, God, how come I can't do what I want to do? I, I want to be holy. I, I want to be better at this life you've given me. But I keep, keep screwing up. Can you please just work in my heart? Help me grow faster. Help me care less about the distractions or the temptations. Please just help transform me and grow me up. When we begin to spend a lot of time with God, we find that our questions look a lot more like us being transformed than our circumstances being changed. Does that make sense? When we only spend time with God every other week or only at 3 o'clock on Tuesdays because that's when we're in a small group or whatever, we tend to just dive right into, God, you know what? Life would be better if you would fix this, 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 and that. Are you really big? How come I don't see you moving? You know, the things I, I asked last week at 3 o'clock, God, I don't know that you really moved on those either. Knock, knock. Anybody home? You know what? I just... I don't even really know if prayer gets answered, God. You know what? I don't even know. I, I'm going to go tell my friends this because it's a lot easier. They're, they're looking at You know what? I don't know that prayer really gets answered. I struggle with doubts a lot lately. You know what? I just, life is messy. Isn't it life messy? You think so too? Yeah, it's just, God's so distant. <sighs> you know, I'm going to go pick up a new book that some marketer on the back cover made sound like it would fix all my problems and you know, um, you see where this goes? I mean, we never really realized, like, God the whole time was saying, wow, what the heck is that monologue you're having with yourself going on? I mean, what is that about? If you really want me, I'm right here. Come and find me. So Jeremiah says it. James echoes it. If you draw near to God... He will draw near to you. We've got to, to shine a light on the immature, simple ways in which we convolute this relationship with God. 
and that our seeking out of him half the time really isn't seeking out him, but just striving. We can, we can mask our own human striving under religious garb, but really what it is is human striving. I had an Old Testament professor in seminary who was more of a pastor than a professor, and he said you can characterize the whole Old Testament by this. When we, when we come, uh, write this down. He said life is relentlessly difficult. Life is relentlessly difficult. And when we run into that fact, there are one of two choices. We either bow our knee and submit to God. We use the word faith for that. Or we ignore God and we try in our own striving to try to fix the difficulty we find in life. So we either submit or we strive. And what I think we need to realize is a lot of our striving, we can, we can baptize with religious imagery and language and not realize that the whole time we're not choosing God, we're choosing our own way. And while it's not working for us, we're actually blaming God for not fixing or dealing with the difficulty that we find in life. And what I'm saying is, God is big and he's holy and Christ is there mediating on our behalf and that's some serious stuff and we need to submit into that because there are rules to happiness and rules to relationships and rules to maturity. They don't just happen randomly. Lastly, we'll close with this. It's our religious affections. It's a phrase I get from Jonathan Edwards, um, the great Puritan. Jonathan Edwards um, wrote a whole book called The Religious Affections. And he was in the Great Awakening and all sorts of religious fervor. And, and he really was always wrestling with what are the, what's just kind of the herd mentality, the crowd reality of religious kind of hype. And what's real? He, he just in his mind was trying to say, I don't want to just be about religious hype. Like I want to see hearts transformed. And so he, he asked this thing, what, is it, what, what are the religious affections, the, the love in the heart of someone transformed by the love of God? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What does it taste like and, and smell like? I want, to, I want to understand this. And... I think it's a good phrase for us to say, what are the right religious affections? What does it mean for us to put our love on God and to put our love on the things that God loves? So let me just explain that last piece. There's uh, the five love languages. Read it. Um, here, read everything you can while you're an engaged couple, especially if you're a guy, because here's what happens to guys. Um, when you read marriage books or your wife asks you to go to marriage like small group or whatever, when you're married, a guy thinks that's failure. Like to read the book implies I'm not doing a good enough job already. Like what are you saying? You know what? Guy, we're wired that way. We're really, we're still living on the school ground. You know what I mean? Like who's better at dodgeball? You know, that ball didn't touch me. It was my clothes. 
it didn't, you know what I mean? Like guys live our lives still playing dodgeball. And we do it with our wives to their detriment and our kids' detriment. Look, what are you saying? You're saying I don't love you enough? I'm mad at you. You know, how can you say that? And so, so read those books while you're engaged. It's a lot easier, guys, okay? Um, but read them no matter what because they're helpful. Um, you're smart enough to spell Google, okay, in Valentine's Day. Um, but so the five love languages are this. Words of affection, uh, wor words of affirmation, touch, quality time, acts of service, doing the dishes for your wife, or buying a dishwasher to do the dishes. Either one works. Um, uh, gifts. That's actually my love language. Um, I forgot about it. So giving gifts. is, is uh, And here's the thing. So these are the ways we channel our love. And the way you channel your love is typically the way you receive love. So what happens is a lot of time in marriage, um, a gal will be serving her husband a lot, and he just thinks, man, I got, a, I got a good, I got a great wife. And what he doesn't realize is she probably is, would, would feel loved if he served her some. Instead, he, he puts it on his calendar, you know, three or four times a year to buy a gift and thinks, you know, like, look at this. And, and they're missing each other. You know what I'm saying? But there's a, a sixth love language that when I was writing my book, it's actually in one of the chapters, I, I, I coined it. Maybe somebody else coined it, but I think I coined it. And I realized this. There's a sixth love language, and that, that is loving the things that somebody loves. Loving the things that somebody loves is a way of loving somebody. If you love my kids, you love me by extension. And this is what Jesus meant, I think, when he said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do it as if you're doing it unto me. So if you love what I love, Ken, you're loving me. If you, if you put your heart and your religious affections on the things that I love, by proxy, you're loving me. And I think that's the love language because God doesn't need our gifts. You know, God doesn't need different things. What God really gets excited about is when we join him, we come alongside, and we love what he loves, and together we get to share that, and, and we come together and have unity and intimacy around that. And so there's this sixth love language, loving what somebody else loves. And I feel like of all the things I've learned in the last decade, making that a choice and a discipline to put your heart onto the things that God's heart beats with is a way to begin to find closeness with God. So those are some of the things. Just having a mature look at Jesus, coming to a, a mature biblical view of happiness, taking responsibility for our own scripture reading and growing in the Lord that way, reframing prayer and solitude with starting who God really is, submitting rather than striving, and then lastly, looking at what's in your heart and making sure that we are choosing to love and to, to try to work out a love for the things that God loves. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We commit this church to you. We commit our decisions to you. I pray that you'd give us the strength to make strong, second-order decisions 
big decisions, lasting decisions, what you call covenants. Help us to understand that's what you do with us, that you make covenants with us, that we can lean into those covenants and know your love and know your commitment for us, that we can look at Christ and derive joy daily knowing that he is still our shepherd. He's not behind us. He's not in the rearview mirror. He is in front of us, and he cares that we can follow him into the valleys, that even in the midst of the valleys that we have a shepherd with us who knows us, who cares about us, who calls us by name. God, I pray for all of us here that we would know the joy of your salvation, that we would know the joy of fellowship with your spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.